Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and values. This week in our search for truth, we look at the tortured relationship between federal, liberal and national parties, wonder why Gladys Berejiklian hasn't been able to spend her way to election victory, and lastly we look at the stunning reversal of the ban on Milo Yiannopoulos travelling to Australia. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Today we welcome back IPA Executive Director John Roskam. Hello, Scott and Chris. And we have a new guest panellist, Sydney-based Corporate Finance and Strategy Specialist and frequent contributor to Cadillacy Files, Dimitri Burstein. Welcome. Morning, gentlemen. Great to have you. Great to have someone uh, visiting from Sydney who can tell us all about what's happening up there. And, of course, we'll be asking Dimitri and everybody else in our final segment what they've been reading, watching or listening to. So hang around for that. If you're on iTunes or any of the other great podcast platforms, do not forget to subscribe so that you get all future instalments of Looking Forward and other great IPA podcasts. But first up, it's been a week where the uh, National Party has stolen many of the headlines, which has put the spotlight on the Federal Coalition. Chris? Yeah, so Barnaby Joyce um, this week called for government support of a coal-fired power station in Queensland, and he was very quickly um, shot down, you could say, by... Uh, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison, I'll, I'll quote him for a second. I tend to work in the area of the practical, said the Prime Minister. The things that can actually happen and what can actually happen is investments that we are making in renewable projects and reliable projects. Uh, Barnaby Joyce's response to this shutdown is, well, you know, we're not married to the Liberal Party and we are a party, referring, of course, to the Nationals. Now, I have I have some sympathy with Barnaby Joyce in this, given that um, just a couple of weeks ago, it was actually coalition policy to do precisely that. But more interesting than I think is the energy dimension is exactly what Barnaby Joyce says. The National Party is a party and a party exists in order to pursue the benefits of or pursue uh, policy in the interests of its members and the coalition right now it looks very um uh, it looks like they're diverging away from but be, each other but before we go to the coalition i wouldn't skirt over this energy debate i'm completely confused about how liberal mp's say we need technology neutral solutions but then they give us a renewable energy target they are dead against the coal-fired power station, which is still the cheapest form of generating electricity, but they love hydroelectric batteries that don't work. This this disjunction between, uh, well, as we know, coal is bad and everything else is good, but this idea, well, the government can't own anything except it does own everything and does regulate everything except coal-fired power stations. Yeah, I, I put a lot of this down, though, to the parliamentary press gallery because it didn't actually start with Barnaby Joyce. In fairness, six uh, Queensland National Party MPs signed a letter um, uh, to the leadership saying this is what they wanted as a policy outcome. Barnaby Joyce was not one of those MPs because he doesn't, he's not a Queensland MP for a start. But all the coverage has been about Barnaby Joyce echoing the sentiment of that letter. They said, we want lower power prices. This is driving industry out of business. Suddenly, but, as always, it just becomes about the personalities of Barnaby Joyce. But it, be, it comes about the personalities because no one's going to nail this question of the government is happy to own 
a power plant in the Snowy Mountains, but they're not happy to own a coal-fired power station or even support one. But isn't but, isn't Scott Morrison right on this in, in one sense? And, you know, I'm not going to defend Scott Morrison too much. But his point is that the things that can actually happen... No, that's right rubbish. Now, and right no, 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 now, no, no, no. Right no. now you've why, got a state why, government... Why, why that, do you say that? Right now that you've got... The federal a federal government could overrule it if it wanted right to. Right now you've got a state government that could could potentially hold it back. Yeah, well, they have a fight about it. Yeah. Dimitri. I, I think this issue, if, if I may t- take a, even a higher level view of this, is just a symptom of a bigger problem in Australian politics, and that is the issue of, of federation and the role of the state and the Commonwealth. I was at a Sydney Institute shindig last week where Paul Kelly was speaking about the, 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 the coming election, and he said that the, you know, the issues that affect Longman are completely different to the issues that affect Wentworth, and he's absolutely right. And this is why our federation it really needs a review. It is not the role of the Commonwealth government to get into the into the energy debate. It never was until the last twenty years. Why are we even talking about this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that that's precisely right. I mean, Queensland challenges and Queensland policy and Victorian policy are different, as strange as that might be for Canberra to understand. But I and I also think that the politics are different. Like the politics are different for that reason, which is which is why we should be able to accept. And I think that the Nationals should be stronger on this in in many ways. Should be able to accept that a coalition government at the federal level is not necessarily going to be stable. Um, the idea that the Nationals should stand up for rural and regional interest is not necessarily going to work well to a party that also but, has to care on, about Wentworth and but, also but, has to care about, you know... But, no, but the issue for the but, National uh, Party is not now the Liberal Party, it's the Greens. It's the Greens who are taking the, taking the National Party seats. I think the issues aren't, aren't as, as simple as what is, as what is being presented. And I don't take uh, Chris's uh, view either uh, that the Liberal Party has to do both. It's like Donald Trump running on a policy uh, to win the presidency but then having a uh, platform entirely directed towards Manhattan or Los Angeles. The biggest, for me, the structural problem of, of the um, non-Labor parties is the huge divergence between the interests of voters in Wentworth, Kuyong and Higgins, let's say, and, and those in Longman. I suspect um, we are in absolute and, and furious and, agreement. And, and, and <laughs> the, my line, which I've had absolutely no success in uh, instilling into the public debate, is what is the coalition's Pennsylvania strategy? What is its Michigan strategy? Um, why is the coalition intent on simply running policies to win green seats when they should be aiming to win seats that are comprised of the working class and the middle class and people who actually care about freedoms and care about power prices. But what's happened to the Liberal Party? Because these are not the people. Dimitri, it's your fault. It's my fault. (laughs) I'm not a member of a team. (laughs) You know, I, I... what do you reckon? As a voting public. You're the public. Because the cat is representative of Australia. Dare, dare, I, dare I say, I think the agendas running through Barnaby Joyce's comments are much broader than just energy policy. I think they're domestic economics. And I'm, by, by domestic economics, I'm talking about the Joyce household. You know, the Which remu- one? His personal... Well, <laughs> You know, is it possible that, you know, he's, he's putting his, you know, stake in the ground for a run for, a, you know... A, Deputy uh, deputy opposition leader post election because the remuneration for a deputy opposition leader is a bit but, higher than a. But, but in opposition, but in opposition, he's to going to have to reconcile these interests. How do the non-labor parties reconcile 
these interests. My argument would be you reconcile them by you having one party that is non-Labor winning, aiming to win Wentworth and Kuyong and Higgins and you have another party aiming to win Longman and you have another party aiming to get the Conservative vote in the Senate or the Libertarian vote in the Senate. How, how do you reconcile those interests? Um, you don't and that's the problem we've got at the moment with our you know, Commonwealth architecture that the Fed's the feds have tried to grab hold of everything, and as you know, when you when you when you when, when the feds centralise, they standardise and they bureaucratise. And a policy that it might work in Wentworth is not going to work in Longman. Isn't that right about the nationals, though? Because we've been understanding over the last couple of years, really, we've been understanding the split in the Liberal Party as, say, wets and dries or, or free marketeers um, uh, or you know, libertarians, conservatives. Communists lots, on and those, libertarians. Okay, communists and libertarians. On those, those dimensions. But the nationals have been sort of ancillary to that discussion, whereas, in fact, if you map out on the electoral map where this divide much firmly is it's geographic yeah and, and the nationals are a geographic and the party. nationals have gone missing on they 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 haven't engaged in any of the debates around culture they uh we have now national ministers saying well barnaby joyce doesn't represent the party room or the party well i'll tell you what if you had a vote of national party members and national party voters um they would like to come down for lower energy prices but, I, I think what this tells us is that the catastrophic mistake that was made was the merger between the liberals and the nationals in 2008 in, in but queensland. only in queensland in queensland yeah so the idea that you can um, bring all these diverse interests together you can care about you know the 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 LNP is trying to defend inner city Brisbane and far north Queensland at the same time without the capacity to diverge their messages and stories and policy frameworks. And it's, yeah, bad, and it's bad for the policy voices. But in fairness, that wasn't a mistake. That was um, because uh, the then Beattie government had changed the rules to, uh, if I get this the right way around, optional preferential voting. And, of course, the country party only exists in Australia because of preferential voting. Uh, this stable coalition that we've had for 85-something years only exists because of preferential voting. Beatty recognising that uh, changed the rules in Queensland. They had no option uh, but to merge the parties to get around that. And uh, my understanding also is that Labor then changed the rules back again. So, so Dimitri, are we seeing a fundamental split in um, the way Australian politics is done or have we just been papering over it I, I think for the last 50 years? I think it's just a continuation of the the process, uh, uh, and these are just the ruptures that we're going to continue to see. And I, d I think that, uh, you know, these are much more obvious when you're in government than when you're in opposition because you better wait until, you know, Labor's in government because they're going to have the same problems. It's easy, you know, when you're in opposition, your objective is to beat the government. So you're, you're in, in alignment. When you're in government and you have to make decisions about immigration, budgets, education... I think that, you know, the conversations, you know, these ruptures are going to be obvious on the other side. I think and part of, you know, part of the consequence of this centralisation and this failure of our federation, well, not failure, but this corruption of our federation is this volatility in Canberra. But don't we like that? I mean, for, for me, this idea that everyone has to agree and you uh, can't be challenging the opportunity to win an election because you can't say what you think is is part of the problem. You should have someone coming out and saying, well, far north Queensland can have a coal-fired power station, it can have a nuclear power plant, it can have uh, um, solar panel farms, it can have all of these things. This idea that everyone has to agree 
all of the time and that if you don't, you are therefore somehow threatening the government or threatening the opposition, I think has led to the weakening of the parties. Well, you also... We have to also note that at, at you know the uh, at at a, at a national level there is no national party representation from Western Australia, South Australia, ACT, Tasmania. It is you know mainly an East Coast phenomenon. So this is the consequence of taking everything up to the national level that you want to you know there is a you know desire to standardise and what applies in Longman does not apply in Wentworth. And when you have Commonwealth policy, well, the tendency... What do you have against the Commonwealth government, Dimitri? I'd like it... <laughs> you I'd like, like it. less of it. Much, <laughs> much well, less no, no, of it. Well, no, no, semi-serious question. If you had to abolish one level of government, would it be federal, state or local? I'd, well, you can't... I'm not of the Bob Hawke school who want to get rid of the states. I mean, even if you could, I would rather have the states more empowered to, to do the, the things that they were I designed to do. I once told my politics lecturer... At, uni that federation was a bad idea <laughs> of and, which we and, are probably the only yeah, two people and, in the and, and and he looked at me like i was an idiot and i just said hey renaissance italy and he yeah, had no, no the idea dutch, what i was the dutch talking Republic, about in fact i, I was at liberty fest Can last we week talk about the failure of federation that's right i mean I, I was i was at liberty fest last week and i made this point precisely that federation was a mistake there were better alternatives available to um uh to to the australian colonies Federate, we have the federation that we have because we misunderstood the way the American constitution works and the America has the constitution they have because they misunderstood the way the Dutch Republic worked. But there are better alternatives. That customs union uh, model, which was pushed by some in the business community in the late 19th century in Australia, was a significantly better alternative than what we have now. Or even if we'd had the Canadian model whereby the provinces have real power. Well, the reason, though, that Canada works is because they've got these these French people just stuck in the uh, on the side there, um, and they're very jealous of their power because they wouldn't want to give their French powers over to the English. But you can also look at the Swiss model. I mean, that works well, and where the cantons have much more power... Than the feds. Not to mention, you have um, citizen-initiated referenda, and we have part-time politicians. I, I like that we started this conversation on, on splitting the coalition. Ah, oh, let's tear apart the country. yeah. Let's tear it apart. I mean, this is the other thing. Um, no, sorry, just on Switzerland. Sorry, Scott. And how many different income tax rates do they have? It's something like uh, at least half a dozen. <laughs> that was one of Malcolm. For, um, no, but the point <laughs> is, we also hear ad nauseum that we live in a more polarized society which is a pretty tendentious claim. But what's what's actually happening is that because all of the issues have arrived in one place, of course it looks polarised. If the, It's not that everyone necessarily should be forced to agree or should be allowed to discuss and debate. It's where the locus of decision-making is, and that's what true localism, a, a working federation, actually means. You don't have a national debate about whether central Queensland should have a coal-fired power station. They just get on with it. And actually Barnaby Joyce uh, is on the record at saying that all the... Queensland should have been split into two or three states so a long Jeffrey time Blaney. ago. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're, it's, we're a having a, it's another. We're failure. having a, a debate about whether there should be a national pill testing regime. Yeah, this is insane. But isn't isn't the problem then uh, from both sides of politics that 
the idea that whatever the government is in Canberra has to represent something about the Australia as a nation. We need a national pill testing regime, not because it's more efficient to to test up. Give it to the AFP. <laughs> give it to the AFP, <laughs> which is obviously insane. Um, we Gee, think you should give it to the ABC. Because, yeah. you know, what what would Canberra represent? You know, if we didn't have what did this, the Australian people what, want? what would the Australian people be saying by not having that law or having that law? And unfortunately, both sides of politics are like this now because they feel that they have to lead with values and those values have to imposed, be imposed on a society that is too diverse, too diverse to, to do so. What agreement? You love on one hand how they argue for diversity and multiculturalism, but they want to standardise everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's right. We, we can have diversity in everything except viewpoints. <laughs> <laughs> we must be united behind our leaders. That's uh, very disappointing. Um, meanwhile, in uh, New South Wales, there's a state election coming up, and uh, the Liberal government apparently wanted to uh, justify their re-election on the basis of uh, infrastructure, infrastructure doesn't necessarily seem to be working. Yeah, so the New South Wales election, and um, uh, I'm I'm from Victoria, but in my interpretation of what seems to be happening in New South Wales, and I'll ask Dimitri for his views, um, has really come down to um, infrastructure spends versus claims about overdevelopment. I've got a long list of infrastructure projects that I pulled off uh, the Guardian of all places um, that is being proposed by the government. All sorts of train and metro. Where does the Guardian programs. line up on infrastructure? I don't know. It was actually a very Some helpful article. Solar panel power. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, on top of the trains and roads projects, which everybody knows about, there is these stadiums um, that are being proposed or being um, renovated or abolished and rebuilt. Um, the stadiums only present two percent of the infrastructure budget, but Labor is nonetheless running on a schools, not stadiums platform. This is interesting, not because it's interesting to debate. Um, uh, individual road projects or even stadium projects. But it's interesting because it's sort of, in a way, a bit post-political. So you can have a, and we have this in Victoria as well, can you have a strong political view about which particular road project to invest in? And what does that say about the state of, uh, the, the state of state government politics and political philosophy? And I want and Dimitri so to explain why when you go to Sydney, all of the CBD is torn up. <laughs> um, well... I, my office in Sydney is perhaps 20 metres from George Street, which has been a construction zone for I don't know how long. Since convict times. Um, <laughs> and I know John, John's referring, for those listeners aren't aware, of the famous <laughs> Sydney Light Rail project, which is um, costing New South Wales taxpayers, just the construction costs, I think $175,000 a metre. <laughs> um, it is 12 kilometres at a budget of $2.1 billion um, and, and I bet that's not going to be the final number So $175,000 a metre You know, if I could only earn that for, you know, walking up and down um, You could carry people for that <laughs> I, you know, exactly. I know that I will run a bus service the, for that the, price I'm very happy to The New South Wales government has is running a line That the last eight years of the Labor government, approximately $40 billion was spent on infrastructure. These eight years, we've spent 90. So we're, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Twice as good. We must be twice as good. So they get twice as many votes. But, you know, at $175,000 a metre, of course you're going to spend, you know, get, get, you know spend $190 billion. But, but to come to Chris's point, 
Where's the debate about values, about principles? What struck me looking or at value the, for money. Va- well, indeed, value for and and whose money is it? But yeah. listening uh, to the New South Wales Premier, and this was how her speech at the uh, campaign launch was reported. You can have everything. You can have your schools. You can have your hospitals. You can have your stadiums or stadia, as the case may be. Um, isn't this just a complete bankruptcy of anything that it means to be liberal or national, the idea that uh, anything is now affordable and you don't have to make choices and there's no such thing as opportunity cost. I think, I can't remember when it was, but Barack Obama in one of his you know, famous speeches said something to the effect Don't that, waste the crisis. Um, <laughs> no, that was, that was his chief of staff. He said, government is the one thing to which we can all belong. Um Rather creepy because we're not allowed to opt out. Um, State-sanctioned violence means we have to. You know, look, I've got it right here. You know, you you have to admire the um, the Liberal Party for their creativity. This is their election slogan: "Let's get it done." <laughs> now that that ranks that would be the light rail project. Yeah, you know, <laughs> let's that, get it done. That, yeah. You know, and I just and uh, you know the 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 last election that the New South Wales Labor Party um, won, I th- I'm going back, I think it would have been 2007 or eight. their slogan was, more to do, but we're heading in the right direction. Now, <laughs> you know, in hindsight, one doesn't know, one has to wonder whether that was actually the motto of the Obeid faction or the Labor <laughs> Party, but, um, you know, you know there's a problem when the government's motto is, um, we can spend on the stadium, it's only... Two percent. Two percent. It's only two percent. Um, look, I I personally think it's not a, an efficient use of money. But if you're going to do it, stand up for it. You know, put your put your money where your mouth is. Get up and say we think this is the right thing to do for the following reasons. Don't just say oh it's just the scraps from the rest of the stuff we're building. And you know, just to get a bit more colour for the um uh, for the for this for the listeners outside of New South Wales, the 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 principal advocate of um, the New South Wales Stadium strategy is a gentleman by the name of Mr. Stuart Ayres, who is the husband of the Honourable Maurice Payne, um, former um, Commonwealth Defence Minister and now Foreign Minister. And you've got to wonder what kind of dinner conversations they have. So how many billions did you spend today? <laughs> Let's get it done. Uh, but this is one of the things about the um, uh, the incentives that are faced by state governments and particularly Liberal governments that uh, they they say, well, we, we've got the brand of being better economic managers, but how do you prove that in the end at the state government level? You can't hand it back through income tax powers. Cause oh, they, yes, you can. Because they disappear. Well, you'd have to be... No, they don't levy income taxes. The World War II and the High Court buggered that up. So it's like, how do you actually demonstrate to people that you've been very good economic managers and you're running surpluses and you have some money in the bank? The only way you can actually demonstrate it is by spending it on stuff there's all sorts of perverse incentives that arise for uh state governments and and of course it's a bit of a dead end for the liberal party to say look at what good economic managers we are because it only takes one project like the light rail project or something like um uh, blowing up a stadium so that you can build another one which does exactly the same job and you've lost all that credibility and that's why it's been um, so funny that, as you say, they're now, they're now saying, oh, we're only, only spending 2% on stadiums. And to draw a distinction between state governments here in Australia and Liberal governments and looking at, for example, what the Republicans 
are doing in the state houses in the US and in districts and localities. Um, there, there are very strong programs around cutting red tape, cutting taxes, education reform, health reform, building localism, um, supporting voluntary communities. None of that seems to be alive in any any state government. I mean, here in Victoria, uh, the the program was you know lock up uh, bad kids. Okay. Fair enough, but that didn't really work in New South Wales. It's let's build more stadiums. Um, the it seems like a hundred years of political philosophy and education has completely bypassed our um, non-labor state politicians. But, it, but I mean, it has to, and and one of the reasons that they can do that in the United States is because they just do have more. Um, uh, more tools at their disposal to make policy decisions. The move of so much, um, you know, the national curriculum is the greatest example of this. The state governments at one stage had control over the curriculum of the public schools. Um, now, we think that there should be probably, I, I suspect everybody in this room thinks that there should be competitive curricula, but at the very least, the state governments had the capacity to make some decisions about what their um, school system would look like. Now, it's gone all to the federal level and from the funding structures to the content structures, to the content, and um, the state governments don't have that power anymore. Again, everything goes up to Canberra and everything has to become a reflection of the values of us as a nation, not as a regional area or a community. But you, you're looking at education the wrong way, Chris. I think that you know our modern education system has nothing to do with students. It's a system, <laughs> system to manage and produce teachers. That's what it's all about. It's about, you know... If you can pull out a teacher from far north Queensland and seamlessly slot them into inner Sydney, inner city Sydney. Well, I mean, that's that, what, that's that, what it's that literally is the argument for the national curriculum. It's that there will be a much better capacity for students and teachers to move. That was the line states. that Julie Bishop used when the national curriculum really came to the fore under the Howard government. And we did the calculations at the time, and it was like about three or four percent of students at a maximum move every year so we're completely turning education policy on its head and nationalizing something that has got nothing to do with the national government uh on the excuse of three or four students and, and here percent. we are here we are again we 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 want to talk this is a a political podcast, a, politi a podcast of ideas. We want to talk about the policy behind this, but the only debate that's being offered um, in New South Wales is stadiums or schools. Which one do you? Which one do you want? You. They will build the schools, and then the New South Wales Labor Party will build schools and then hand control of those schools over to the national government. What possible? Alternative or the Australian Education or the, Union, or the Australian Education point. Union, or Australian Department of Education bureaucrats, or, or, or striking twelve-year-olds who think <laughs> hang on, the world is drowning. Well, hang on, the New South Wales Labor opposition has a policy of one hundred percent renewables, so they're going to be building schools with solar panels <laughs> and windmills. So let's turn it on its head then. So what? Uh, there have been many things centralised. Uh, over the years since our federation was established, but what are you know what are the opportunities for state governments? I mean, red tape was one of them. Campbell Newman uh, didn't worry about the federation. He had a red tape reduction program, which systematically identified and then uh, started to reduce the number of regulatory restrictions in Queensland. Uh, but unfortunately, it only lasted three years, so we never saw the full results of that. I mean, what, John, what, what can you do in education, for instance? Not much, but. This is not going to be a small or short process. State politicians, as federal politicians have pointed out, um, 
often don't want to take responsibility for their decisions. The other reality that we face is that if a state government was to say, I'm rejecting the national curriculum and now we're going to have a state-based curricula or ideally uh, private competing curricula, that may or may not be mandated or um, governed by the state. The public is not going to support that. This is going to be a process of of years of of change. Um, the argument, of course, under Kevin Rudd was there was there might be the debate about uh, the federal government getting health, state governments getting education. Tony Abbott's white paper was um, not never finished under the the uh, Turnbull government. It's going to be a long, a long process because there is not much that can be done. The IPA, of course, led the charge uh, against recognising local government in the constitution. Uh, local government responsibilities are increasingly going to to the federal government, so they're determining where your neighbourhood house will be located. Um, it is not a single thing to be done. It is firstly an identification of the will to change, not because state governments have rights. States don't have rights. People have rights. And there's no organisational party at the moment other than the IPA, to my knowledge, making that claim for people have rights. And the best way to get the best government is have it as close to the people as possible, that little old-fashioned term of subsidiarity. The governments have, the state governments haven't actually formally given up control over these things. So we've had a sequence of, you know, uniform national laws for, you know, regulation and things like defamation laws and uniform national laws now. But they haven't actually the the state governments still have constitutional control over many of the things that they used to do. What they need to do is decide to stand up on these things, decide to vary them, whether it's a Labor government and it wants to increase regulation or a Liberal or coalition government that might want to decrease regulation they need to be able to stand up that's why it is it is much better for us as a nation to have state governments on one side of politics and um, national governments on another side of politics and when you think through that no, but Chris then they're not cooperating well then they're not cooperating then it's divisive but it is divisive and <laughs> it's divisive <laughs> and in that division is liberty this is this is one of the wonderful things we don't that's want what we, to if get the, along. If, if the coalition in New South Wales had gone with an election slogan, in, in division, division there l- is liberty. liberty. <laughs> You're right, Chris, but they have a lot of lots of they have lots of powers, but they have no money. And the Commonwealth says, "You want this? This is what you got to do." Um, so, and it's and the whole system is even you know if I dare bring it back to federation again uh, and federalism. I mean, the Commonwealth Grants Commission, the perverse incentives that that. That, that puts on the states, you know, because if you, if you reform, if you get, achieve microeconomic reform and growth out of that, other people will benefit from it. Why bother? Yeah, but look, I, it's hard. Don't you remember, like, obviously, all the incentives are going the other way, all those sorts of things. But we can't sit, sit back and just say, well, you know, it is very, very hard. So we expect very little of our governments as a, as a response. And we v- expect very little but of I, our I'm free I'm very market happy friends. to expect very little from the governments if they then do very little. No, no, I agree. I agree. But but when we're when we're looking at the ballot box and we're seeing two sides Hang on, of what do you politics, mean looking, do you turn up? Do you, <laughs> no, no. no we, I, I usually draw a little picture. Um, I'm not going to say what that picture is. Um, uh, when when we're looking, are you at, the Ferris Bueller vote? China <laughs> from Tonga. Yeah. I wa- at one stage I was doing a donkey vote under a misapprehension that a donkey vote wasn't just listing in an oar, and I would try to draw a little donkey, and it looked nothing like a donkey, and the poor scrutineers, obviously. But um, uh, but you know, if we're not, if we're unwilling to um, uh, expect something of the potential political leaders in this space, then we're never going to get anything. 
We need to be able to arm um, potential state governments and state oppositions with some of the intellectual tools to fight back against those really perverse incentives, which I completely agree exist. Look, if I if I can bring up one of my favourite federalism. Uh, uh, no, no, it's not federalism. Um, there was a there, there was there is a political scientist from I think it's Princeton University. His name Stephen Tellis. I don't know if you've heard of him. He wrote an article. I don't know five, ten, fifteen years ago called the uh, you know. The rise of the kludgeocracy. Yeah. Have you heard of this? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. fantastic piece. The the kludge is it's a, it's a term that's unfamiliar to me. It's a computer. It's sci- unfamiliar to me too. It's, it's a it's a it's a it's a computer science, uh, con- you know, computer programming concept that where if you find a bug, you quickly you don't rearchitect the software. You just slap a patch on it, and so what's happened is government upon government has slapped a patch upon a patch upon a patch, and what you've got is Windows. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, the you said Windows, I thought bits of glass. No, no, <laughs> Microsoft and then Windows. I had to apply the technology. No, but aren't you being too kind to politicians? This is their plan. No, no, but <laughs> it's deliberate. It's it's deliberate. No, I'm being I'm being semi serious. No, but what what we've got at the moment, you know, and I'm I've, I've never really felt comfortable with this whole left right construct. But what we've got at the moment is a left wing party and an anti left wing party. And you just want the sensible centre. No, I don't want the sensible centre. I want somebody to say less government because I don't want... Poli- That's not centrist. I, 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 want, I want somebody... You know, I want government to be measured not on how much they spend and what, but what they actually achieve. So, so we'll have in the New South Wales election um, a good friend of the IPA, an IPA member, David Leonhelm, running, which mm. will be wonderful. Uh, what will the LDP get? Three, four, five percent Why? Why isn't a smaller government, lower taxes, less regulation party... Um, sweeping the polls because everybody just loves stadiums. I guess that's the that's because the lesson there. As, as as I think you said in a podcast, John, um, a couple of podcasts ago, where once the message from government is, um, if you want this, we all have to sacrifice. What the message is now is, um, you want this, you don't have to sacrifice. The guy over there has to sacrifice. The guy who gets their franking credits, correct? <laughs> Somebody else. One thing the Commonwealth government can do is issue visas, and there's been a lot of debate recently over one whether one should be interest uh, issued to Milo Yiannopoulos. So Milo Yiannopoulos, his visa was to visit Australia. He's here, or he's planning to come here on a speaking tour. Was first denied, um, and then it was reinstated after some uh, lobbying, as we read from. Uh, Senator James Patterson, Tim Wilson MP and Senator Amanda Stoker and they managed to get David Coleman, the Immigration Minister, to reverse that decision which I think is and, and we probably... Well, to, did you say room. to be precise, the department indicated an intention to deny Milo's visa? Yes and, and yeah. David David Coleman stepped in and personally approved, um, uh, approved the visa. I'm deeply concerned about I mean it's good that that I'm not a big Milo Yiannopoulos fan, um, but it's good that we're not censoring someone's um, uh, speech through uh, the visa process. But I think we're in a long period, or we've seen over the last decade or so, the use of visas and immigration law as political censorship. So we had Gert Wilders nearly had his visa cancelled um, in 2012. Uh, Gavin McInnes of uh, Proud Boys fame 
was cancelled last year. The Malaysian activist Harris Ibrahim was cancelled in 2013, although there was some suggestion that he was a potential visa overstayer. There was an anti-abortion campaigner whose um, visa was cancelled in 2015 as well. Um, I'm deeply concerned about the idea that the um, Federal Immigration Department is making decisions about what we can and cannot hear. Um, this is just not the role for them. Uh, if the if they if anybody who comes to Australia breaks Australian law, then they should be prosecuted under Australian law, even if we don't like those laws. But we should not be preemptively trying to censure speech. And it's happening under a coalition government. The well, idea that a coalition government would send well, well, I won't say censor will be precise. Deny a visa to someone to come to Australia and speak uh, against vaccination, I find absolutely abominable. And for me, the, I mean, nothing that the, you know, the the coalition government has been so disappointing at so many levels, nothing disappoints me that they do anymore. Um, what I find surprising is not the craven behaviour of the minister at the beginning of this process, although to his credit he's now changed his view, but that after a number of years now of a coalition government, you have the Department of Immigration quoting the extreme left-wing organisation, the Southern Poverty Law Centre, as an authority on what Milo Yiannopoulos says. The idea that some bureaucrat in the Department of Immigration can say because a left-wing semi-totalitarian government has decided to whack a $50,000 fee on you to pay for police because you have provoked left-wing anarchists and a violent radical mob and that's an excuse for you to not come to Australia. I find absolutely unbelievable and as I said in my note to IPA members on Friday written before we knew that James Patterson and Tim Wilson and Amanda Stoker, Chris as you said, had convinced the Minister to change his position, what just completely astounded me but didn't disappoint me or surprise me sadly was not a single coalition MP, not a single one had stood up on this. Well, it's funny. Not a you, single one. It's, it's funny you raise that because Chris Bowen, when he was immigration minister, wrote this about Gert Wilde as he was approving the visa. Bowen said the way to deal with extremist commentators such as Wilders is to defeat his ideas with the force of our arguments and experiences, not the blunt instrument of denying him entry into Australia. It is astonishing to me that I we mean, can hear that. Bowen said that. So, uh, Chris Bowen, the Labor immigration So he minister. might not be a terrible treasurer, <laughs> even <laughs> well, though he's going to well, take look, all my money away. We, they're all terrible <laughs> treasurers. But, um, uh, but you know, this was, this was his position. Now, that may not be a uniform view throughout the Labor Party because... It's I not a view in the Liberal Party. Certainly not a view in the Liberal Party. Victorian state government, of course, Labor Victorian state government is announcing that Milo is not welcome in Victoria, but they are apparently helpless to stop his controversial speaking tour. Thank God the Victorian state government doesn't have control over what we can listen to, which 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 brings me to the point. It's not that we care particularly about Milo's right to speak. It's that we care about Australians' right to to listen to him, as John Stuart Mill said, if um, uh, the the burden of a anti speech law is felt by the listeners, not the speakers, and the uh, the act under which the department had originally proposed to bar him said that it was, uh, you know, it was like a show cause letter, and it said um, under section five hundred one sixty. I bet you didn't know that existed before. <laughs> um, we uh, looking suggest you may not pass a character test because. 
In the event that you're allowed to enter or remain in Australia, there is a risk that you could, and this is a quote from the Act, incite discord in the Australian community or a segment of that community. So this really goes like, and what we're seeing is how far can you take that clause? Because inciting discord, of course, is the whole point of speech. If everyone just agreed with each other, uh, society wouldn't be able to, well, this is the utilitarian view, society would never progress in its ideas because uh, from... It depends on your vision of the, what society should look like. Exactly. <laughs> and um, So it's not a foot stamping on your face permanently. Yeah. So <laughs> not, not Speech is violence, John, come on. Certainly in this case. Have you been to a university recently? So what what we've really seen is you can take that section of the Act and and apply it as widely as you like um, because any speech by definition is creating that that discord. And, I mean, if if a Uyghur wants to come to Australia, couldn't the Chinese government ask if it's going to incite discord? A a Sikh nationalist in the Indian government could argue the same. uh, Sheikh Omar Abdel Kafi coming to Australia saying that uh, 9-11 and the Charlie Hebdo attacks was purely, um, merely comedy movies. Does that excite discord in me? Does he then get barred? Well, well, no, as it turned out. <laughs> no. I, you know, I'm just... I'm what just, excites I'm discord just, I'm in I'm, you? I'm just, I'm just waiting for you know, the, the potential change of government and if Donald Trump wants to come and the Greens want to block him on visa grounds. <laughs> Look, in fact, the immigration... Well, hang on, but... They did say why, that. Why is that not untenable? I, it is entirely tenable. And then, I just think and then be, you charge the US government a couple of million dollars for the Victoria Police to let the Greens through the cordon. Yeah, look, so the Immigration Department actually has a list of, quote, controversial persons on their movement alert list. Um, now, if you're on the movement alert list, that doesn't mean you can't come to the country, but that means that the Immigration Department is going to spend a lot more time thinking about you. There are about 2,500 people on that um, Can we get that um, list? What I would, How do we get that no, list? No, unfortunately, it's private. I have, you know, I have looked. What I would uh, love some, to see... In some detail. <laughs> what I would love to see is that television show that, you know, the government uses for propaganda, border, border security... I'd like to see. I've never li- consent, and I, I will look- never consent to being filmed by. Border I don't Security know, you know, because I, I bring in a lot of fruit. I would love to see, you know, Milo <laughs> in one of the rooms of one of those offices, you know, with the with a phone and having the interview. I, that's what I would love to see. <laughs> I just want to see the Victorian government try to pull him off the train at the border, you know, <laughs> sort of crossing the the Iron Curtain from from New South Wales into Victoria. So we can. All look forward to that if and when he appears. We have reached that point in the podcast where we ask our panellists what they've been reading, watching or listening to. Who would like to lead off? I think our guest from Sydney should go first. Well, why, thank you, John. Um, <laughs> I um, Is it about Federation and no. the new biography of Henry Parks and how he got it all wrong? Well, I, I'm actually, by, by sheer coincidence, been reading a, a number of books about, uh, uh, about Russia and the Soviet Union. I... I just finished Bill Browder's red red notice book, and I'm reading the the book on Chernobyl, which brings Midnight me at Chernobyl, that one, uh, the one about the, the the accident at the moment, um, or not at the moment, you know, in the '80s, which brings me to the latest movie that came out from Marvel. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, wow. go on, explain that connection. That, that's a hell of a segue. propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> oh. um, you yes, my, my my wife and kids and I went to see Captain Captain Marvel on, on the weekend, and it's it's one of my, you know, I look, I it was it's a fun movie. Don't you know? Don't not watch it, you know. But the the problem with, um, the problem I found with it, there was two fundamental problems with it. One, um, it like some of the recent Star Wars movies, the need to reverse engineer 
the story to fit other stories just made it, I think, too complicated. But the other problem I had with it was the high EQ of the movie Estrogen Quotient. Um, you know, in the original cartoon, Captain Marvel, not Marvel, was actually a bloke. And there was they for some reason decided not to keep true to the to the comics, but to make Captain Marvel a woman. We, you know, it's obvious why because there's not enough female uh, uh, superheroes in the in, in the in the series. It was complete. I don't know what what why. You know, it's just. But why are you so angry about this? I'm not angry about why it. But care? what I would what I would like to see. <laughs> and just it's don't like, go and see it. You know, but. I have teenage children. That is not the attitude we have to take to this segment. I want, want, you know, if... if, They can do whatever they want to their franchise. But if the Commonwealth government wants to have, you know, a censor, (laughs) if the Commonwealth government wants to have a censor that says, you know, sexual content or adult context or, you know, can they have like, you know, political political agenda warnings? You know. Uh, That's not bad. I I find Marvel movies almost entirely unwatchable because um, they think that they're a lot more exciting than they are and like two seconds into the movie you've got the biggest swelling orchestra sound and action you're like I don't know who these people are and I do not care oh look you know you can sit you can sit in the cinema for you know Two hours, and you can just you know turn off and enjoy it, and you know the, you know the kids makes so, the kids happy. So, Dimitri, the big question: DC or Marvel? Look, I, you know I'm personally a DC guy. You know Superman's my guy, <laughs> but they can't make a movie to save their lives. You know the the, the DC movies are just terrible. But they're dark. <sighs> yeah, Ben Affleck is Batman. You know. Really? With, you know, like, you know, the last Aquaman movie was sharks with lasers. I could just see Do- you know, Do- really Dr. Dr. Evil. Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> I could see Dr. Evil sitting there in the script Aquaman meetings. completely worked. <laughs> on, on that That's note. <laughs> 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 it was ten times better, was ten times better than Black Panther. <laughs> True discord in the room. Sharks so, with lasers. Good idea or bad idea? So last night, last night I watched Little Pink House. This oh, is a 2017 yes, exciting, movie, yes. which I think um, I'm, I've never seen. It, I can't it's, wait. To it's see so, it. so for the listeners, uh, before we jump into a discussion about how important it actually is, so this is a movie about the Kilo versus New London eminent domain case in the United States that occurred in the late 90s and early 2000s. What's interesting about the Little Pink House movie? Well, just is explain that, Kilo. So, in um, <clears throat> excuse me. In the Kilo versus New London case, um, a uh, the the local New London government was handing over land to the Pfizer Corporation, and it used a power called eminent domain to forcibly take the homes that were currently in that place. They gave Pfizer a massive subsidy, seventy five. Um, million dollars according to the film and then handed over the power to expropriate people's land the movie is about this woman who um, has a little pink house um, uh, and fights um, Pfizer and the new London corporation all the way to the US but Supreme I thought local Court. government was always good. I'm just here. I am arguing. For well, no, government. in this in this one, the state is bad. The local government is good. Um, but most interestingly, I suspect for an Institute of Public Affairs audience, is the team that she got to help her launch this fight or led this fight to the US Supreme Court is an organization called the Institute for Justice. Very close friends of ours. Um, the Institute for Justice is a public interest litigation organization that 
fights for free market causes and it stood up for property rights in this case. It's um it's a really fascinating story. It's not unfortunately the movie is not super easy to get in Australia, but I found if you visit the littlepinkhousemovie.com, you'll be able to um watch it on there as well. There's also a book by Jeff Benedict, which I haven't read, called and Little what, Pink House. And what happens in the end of the movie? Unfortunately, they lose. Um, uh, but they actually... the state always wins. So, so well, in, in this case, that the state did in the Supreme Court, in a very infamous judgment now, um, handed over the money to... Uh, handed over land to the Pfizer Corporation. Pfizer have never built this, um, uh, this plant that they had intended to, and the film ends with the real um, uh, protagonist standing in the middle of an empty space where a house used to be and where there's no um, Pfizer uh, uh, system, uh, Pfizer um, factory there, unfortunately. But having said that, even though they lost, it has sparked a lot of changes, at, uh, legislative changes at the state level to and prevent there's been talk this that sort of eminent Eventually, Kilo might be overturned. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I'm not particularly familiar with the case you're describing, Chris, but if they only had Dennis DeNudo representing... Yeah, so it's basically it's basically a very self-serious version of the castle, but it also happened. Yeah. Uh, I, I think... Um, so, Institute for Justice. So if we had something in like that in Australia, I mean, governments already fund the Environmental Defender's Office. Uh, surely, surely governments would step in and fund something like that to... Look, give people the opportunity. <laughs> well, I mean, but, uh, if but you, fundamentally, if you, if you, if you, if you can fund people well, to stop could, Adani, couldn't you stop well, uh, fund people to stop well, uh, expropriation it, it, of property? It's funny you should say that. Many years ago, uh, many state governments uh, instituted a policy whereby law, private law firms used by governments, needed to do a certain amount of pro bono work to qualify to get on the list to be able to be used by state governments. And and I asked an, an unnamed attorney general of an unnamed state one day. Of all of that pro bono work that all those law firms do, and many of them are not just labour-leading union-friendly um, firms, they're big city commercial firms, do any of them do any pro bono work that is in any way connected to freedom or liberty? And the answer was, oh, absolutely. The sound of crickets. <laughs> oh, so much. <laughs> and it was the sound of crickets. Well, I've one might suspect the reason is is that they're all conflicted out because they're all getting so much work from government. You know, isn't that the strategy? You know, Microsoft when they ha- when they had their big antitrust case, however many years ago, their strategy was to hit every 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 firm they could find with some work so that they could not act against them because they were conflicted out. Good luck. Um, what two, have you been reading, Scott? Had, I've actually been reading a book. <laughs> <laughs> Not watching <laughs> a movie. Break up this chain <laughs> of movies. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did do a movie last week, so I can't be too high money. One I've been waiting on, I actually had it on pre-order. It's called Why Culture Matters Most by David C. Rose, who's a professor of economics at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And uh, this is, I think, a fascinating book, very especially for if you're of an economics persuasion because... It's a, like a long essay, and he's really tackling this question, first of all, of this remarkable phenomenon of mass flourishing that we see, and there's, uh, uh, particularly in the West, but also spread to other countries. And how does this come about? And there's explanations around technology or geography or whatever. Uh, and he says, fundamentally, the remarkable thing about the most successful societies is that they are high-trust societies. And uh, he talks a little bit about Jonathan Haidt and humans do have some natural inclinations to trust each other, but only in small groups, Um, you know, the famous 150 number. This idea of 
high trust societies of, of hun- sometimes hundreds of millions of people is remarkable, and it doesn't happen by accident. And and what's confused economists, whoever uh, conception of that we're rational actors is, of course, the rational thing is usually to cheat in a transaction, no matter what rules or institutions you have. The argument runs that well, you should you should just cheat and be opportunistic. So this is really what this bloke's tried to grapple with, and he essentially argues that well, we don't do that because we have a, a set of uh, negative moral prohibitions against cheating, which are given to us in childhood, and who gives them to us? Well, it's our parents. So when Moral prohibitions are transmitted from parents to children. That is actually the definition of a culture. But we also we also have other institutions that do that for that, and not not to discount the real importance of, of culture. But you, we also set up like markets. So markets yeah. are um, designed to deal with trust problems, with reputation um, and branding and so forth. And then we, um, if that doesn't work, then we set up companies, and yeah. those companies so, no, are supposed to impose trust. No, you trust should you should read this book because he explicitly tackles that. And and you know there is that divide in economics, and that's why I say it'll be especially interesting to those who like you deal in that sort of institutional space and so this is is it you know institutions versus say a McCloskey view which is it's about values and he takes issues with McCloskey as well but he said well uh, but isn't value isn't trust a value but he says the point is no 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 this is um, uh, it's how you behave uh, according to a negative moral prohibition and what he does how he solves the rationality dilemma is he said it's pre-rational it's not about the moment of choice when you're deciding how to act. The just the the cost in guilt is so high that it you you it's been taking out of your programming. You don't even have that option. Because so how does he establish? Because of what your parents. Well, this is the point. To answer te- Chris's question, though, it is um, you wouldn't have those institutions unless you had the trust first. You know, they're trust building, but you, you still have to go to the prior explanation. So how? Is but how is he? Establish this as he asked a thousand Americans and then this, a thousand someone else. What do you tell your kids this, when they're three this, years old? This is very much a, a, a deductive essay. This is he's establishing a series of, of propositions, but he's engaged with the literature, he's engaged with the institutional view. And the point is, you can have all these institutions in the world, but if if you're seeing, and this is the point, if you're seeing a collapse in those negative moral prohibitions, the ability to transmit culture from one generation to the next then what he's worried about is how long do those institutions then last. So that's just a taste. I mean, it's always, <laughs> it's always struck me that the, the left enjoy this parody of the free market, but of course the free market only works on trust and the great P- Peter Thiel said um, something along the lines of when you want to be successful in life or in business or in any form of uh, human activity, don't act as if you're going to um, die tomorrow, act as if you're going to live forever. Because the people who you deal with, the people who you sell and buy things from, are most likely going to be working with you for many years to come. That's absolutely right. And and in econ- in economics, you use a lot of game theory. And one way to solve the um, a lot of game theory problems is repeated dealing. So, um, are you going to immediately rip someone off um, if you're going to be dealing with them tomorrow or the next day or? Um, you want to build trust. And so trust trust comes from culture, don't get me wrong, and I think that's a really important um, observation. But there's also other ways that we can 
you know, we can build trust in societies, and that is about a structure better, stronger government. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Canberra, Canberra can specifically, if we're going to, you know, yeah. the, the Australian po- Parliament. Who's House? the political party had the slogan? You know, who do you trust? It's like, that was John Howard, wasn't it? Yeah, it's like none of you, none of you, <laughs> <laughs> none of the above. Um, John, this month is the 150th anniversary of the publication of the final instalment of War and Peace. And Gary Mawson, a professor in, uh, I think, at Northwestern, uh, has written a wonderful article published uh, in this month's edition of The New Criterion on the greatest novel of all time, War and Peace. Um, When Andrew Bolt and I did... Um, our podcast on uh, great books of uh, literature and we picked our 10 favourite books. We thought uh, we'd save War and Peace for a, uh, another series because that could be uh, 10 episodes all of its own. But um, uh, what Mawson talks about is the fact that um, the challenges of the modern world, the idea that we are a program set of chemicals and electrical impulses merely designed to um, satiate our desires is contradicted uh, in War and Peace. And he mounts the argument, um, which people are aware of, but which I think I haven't seen as, as nicely put as this, which is that War and Peace is Tolstoy's discussion of reason versus humanity and he draws the distinction between the characters in the book many of whom are german uh, who base their life and their military operations and their activities as humans on reason on science on calculation compared to the fact that life is a lot more complicated than this and uh, uh, Tolstoy, Tolstoy like Dostoevsky of course was was very engaged in in the idea of sociology the physics of society are there rules that um, manage our lives as humans in the same way as there are rules of physics that uh, determine the world of science and of course Tolstoy and to some extent Dostoevsky's argument was um, it, it doesn't uh, and uh, the, the f- famous quote from the uh, Tolstoy's epilogue, if we concede that human life can be governed by reason, then the possibility of life is destroyed. And uh, it's a wonderful, as I said, discussion of how the characters um, live their lives according to these two very different conflicting philosophical um, passages. And there's a wonderful discussion, and Scott mentioned the Battle of Borodino um, before there's a, a wonderful discussion about the uh, the generals discuss- discussing the plan for the Battle of Borodino, um, and uh, the the German influenced Russian generals say um, uh, everything has planned, everything has been worked out. Uh, we need to work out uh, what the enemy does, and if we do that, then we'll they'll do this, and and vice versa. Um, and of of course the uh, the great uh, General Kutuzov says. Um, well, that might be, but in a battle, the most important thing to get is sleep <laughs> because you never know what's going to happen. Everything is contingent. Uh, battles are the results of millions of different of in, different individual choices and chances. Um, and as I said, it's, a, uh, it's this edition of uh, New Criterion, Gary Saul Mawson, uh, the greatest of all novels and... Um, if anything is ever going to get you to read War and Peace and devote a year of your life to reading it, do. And when I when I told Dimitri that this is what I was going to talk about, um, Dimitri told me that what you're 
five-year-old son is halfway through War and Peace? Eleven, and he gave up at a quarter. <laughs> but how, how did you let him give up? <laughs> what, what, his Russian isn't good enough? <laughs> as a matter it's of fact. It's not the same. Well. As, a matter, as a matter of fact. Yeah. But you know that Napoleon used to select his generals not based on skill but based on luck. That's right. Yeah, have a look at it. Um, I'm, I'm so pleased uh, with that, that essay, John, and that distinction because uh, clearly Mike Tyson must have been a reader of War and Peace because he... He famously said, everybody's got a, got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something to be said for humanity. Uh, we'll provide uh, links to that essay and the other items discussed during this show uh, on the notes field of your podcast or indeed on our website. Um, if you're not already a subscriber to Looking Forward, you, can, you should do so now. Uh, this podcast has been brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs to support our research and indeed this podcast. You can and indeed should join or donate at ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists, Chris, Chris Berg. Thank you. John Roskam. Thanks. And uh, our new panellist, Dimitri Burstein. Thank Cheers. you, Dimitri. It's been great to have you. And, of course, our regular producer, James Bolt. Thank you, James. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. <laughs>